You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash Enterprise Data to learn more. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. A half a trillion dollars showdown at the Supreme Court as the justices weighed the fate of President Joe Biden's student loan forgiveness plan. The conservative justices seemed highly skeptical that Biden had the authority to broadly cancel federal student loans of up to 43 million Americans. To many, the enormous price tag was a concern and an indication that it was a job for Congress, not the president. Here are Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Samuel Alito. We're talking about half a trillion dollars uh, and 43 million Americans. How does that fit under the normal understanding of modifying? Seems to presume that when it comes to the administration of benefits programs, a trillion dollars here, a trillion dollars there, doesn't really make that much difference to Congress. That doesn't seem very uh, sensible. But there was support for the program from the liberal justices. Here are Justices Elena Kagan and Sonia Sotomayor. Congress used its voice in enacting this piece of legislation. All this business about executive power, I mean, we worry about executive power when Congress hasn't authorized the use of executive power. Here, Congress has authorized the use of executive power in an emergency situation. Those are exceptions that clearly are permitted under the HEA to cancel a debt. So why would I have a view that Congress didn't understand that in a proper emergency, debt cancellation would be right? My guest is Harold Krent, a professor at the Chicago Kent College of Law. So how does it appear as if the court's conservative majority is, to put it mildly, that Biden has the power to implement this plan under the HEROES Act? To put it mildly, yes. The majority of the court is very skeptical that the statute empowers the Biden administration with the power to cancel all of the student loans. And the reason is that the statute does give the administration power to waive or modify any provision under the act in an emergency. And so much of the argument turns on what's the expanse of waiver and modification, and did Congress ever intend waiver and modification to include cancellation of up to $400 billion of debt with such a tremendous impact upon the economy? And to put it, again, as you stated, to put it mildly, Chief Justice Roberts was emphatically clear that he never thought that Congress would have given so much expansive authority to the administration to take that kind of action with such a 
broad impact on the economy. In other words, this emergency power, according to the seeming majority of justices, may be postponing debt, may be limiting interest payments, but certainly didn't entail such broad cancellation authority. Does it seem like the only hope, really, for the student loan forgiveness program is if the justices don't find standing? There is grave questions about whether the plaintiffs in both combined cases have what's called you know, standing to proceed. There are lots of questions raised about whether the states can demonstrate the sufficient injury to continue the case. And with respect to the students who are not benefited by the loan cancellation, whether they have standing as being frustrated because Biden didn't include them in the package of loans that were to be canceled. So they may not have any kind of recognized injury to pursue these claims anyway. And of course, their claim is odd. Their claim is it's we should have been included. And so you should knock down the Biden plan. That's a very strange kind of standing. And I, I do think it's fair to say that if the court takes this case and decides it on the merits, which would not for sure, but likely go against the Biden administration, they'll be broadening standing, which is unusual because this court in the past has most recently narrowed standing in lots of different ways. So that's why I think this is a tough case. You have a case on standing, being able to get into court, which is challenging. But on the merits, based on the oral argument, at least a good number of the court were saying that Biden administration overstepped its bounds in deciding to cancel these student debts, which could be 25 to 40 million people at a cost of over 30 years of $400 billion to the economy, which, again, this is a, a huge undertaking by the Biden administration. So let's look at standing first, because it seemed as if the liberal justices were more concerned about standing, except for Justice Amy Coney Barrett. Here's Justice Amy Coney Barrett questioning Missouri's standing. Why didn't the state just make Mohila come then? If, if Mohila is really an arm of the state and all of this would be a lot easier, I mean, the Solicitor General conceded that if Mohila was here, Mohila would have standing. If Mohila is an arm of the state, why didn't you just strong arm Mohila and say you've got to pursue this suit? Yeah, so there's two theories of standing with respect to the states. All the states said that they will have injury in fact because their tax revenues may uh, go down because of the cancellation by the Biden administration of the student loans. That argument, I think, is very weak because, if anything, their tax proceeds may go up because of the student debt forgiveness because people will have more money to spend and more money to invest and more confidence in the economy of the respective states. So the states can't show a connection between cancellation of student debt and any kind of harm to their tax coffers. Both the sides, both the Biden administration and the plaintiffs, argue that a entity that processes loans, they might suffer because of the fact that there'll be fewer people that turn to them for processing loans because their loans will be forgiven under the Biden plan. And that's true. That would be injury in fact. Most of those loan processors are private. There is one processor in Missouri, which is a kind of state corporation that's separate from the state, but yet is public. And so that's called Mahilla. And so it was a question as even though they haven't come in into this case, they haven't sued, whether Missouri as a state has enough overlap with Mohilla so that they, in essence, can say that either they will be affected if Mohilla suffers 
or where they can raise Mihalo's claims on behalf of Mihalo because they're both part of the state of Missouri. So that was the nexus of the standing argument that was presented. And it's a very complicated question because under Missouri law, Mihalo can sue and be sued in its own name, and its debts will not be subject to being paid by the state of Missouri. So they're a state-created institution, but they're separate from the coffers of the state, and they chose not to sue in this case. So that's the question, is whether that injury, which everybody recognizes is sufficient for injury in fact, whether Missouri can, as a state can stand in the shoes of that injury and advocate it in order to get into court to challenge the student debt program. Let's talk about the merits. What do you think was the main concern of the justices? Was it a problem with separation of powers? Was it something else? The problem that the justices saw it articulated over and over is this is a massive program. And did Congress, when it enacted the HEROES Act and gave the administration the power in an emergency to make modifications to the student loan programs, did they ever envision something on this scale, a scale that would encompass 25 to 40 million people in this country, a scale that could cause cancellation of debts to the amount of $400 billion over 30 years? And I think they just thought that this was such a massive scale that the Biden administration wasn't just sort of modifying the program in a national emergency, but by canceling debt, it was actually changing the nature of the student loan program. And the question is whether Congress really anticipated or envisioned an administration having that much power, even though they said that you should have extraordinary powers in the face of an emergency. So most of the argument with respect to the merits just delved into what degree of modification power the administration could use in an emergency. Everybody agreed that COVID would be a relevant emergency, but did that emergency justify a complete transformation of the student loan program? That was the nub of the merits argument. I mean, is this all about the major questions doctrine that the court has used before to stop Biden administration initiatives during the pandemic, like the moratorium on rental evictions that was struck down? The court did invoke the major questions doctrine as a way to suggest that if we're not sure about the scope of Congress's intended delegation, then we should put our finger on the scale of saying we don't allow a agency to take such kind of wide and expansive action unless we're very confident that the Congress wanted them to go that far. And the language under the HEROES Act, under which the Biden administration predicated this change, allows the Secretary of Education to make a waiver and a modification to the program. So clearly, Congress said, we think you should take action in an emergency. And the question is, by using the language waiver and modification, does that include cancellation as well? And if you have the sort of priors, if you will, or if you have the expectation that agencies should not take expansive interpretations of authority granted by Congress, then you come down on the side that a cancellation does not equal a waiver or a modification. But if, on the other hand, if you come down on the side that Congress was acting in an extraordinary way, saying you, you, the administration, should take extraordinary measures in the face of an emergency, then a waiver and a modification can include a cancellation, and then what the Biden administration would be upheld. Even Justice Kavanaugh said that, you know, Congress acted here. It thought about the problem, and it wanted to give the Education Department extraordinary powers to protect Americans in the face of any kind of emergency, whether it's like 9-11, which precipitated passage of the HEROES Act, or if it's like COVID. So there is a question even with respect to the so-called 
conservative justices how they may come down if they reach the merits on this delegation issue. Justice Kavanaugh also said that some of the biggest mistakes in the court's history were deferring to assertions of executive or emergency power. He did say that, and he was referring to the seizure of the steel mills um, in the Korean War by President Truman. Maybe he was referring to President Trump and the border wall when he invoked the emergency for that. I don't know. But he was also probably talking about what we did after uh, 9-11 in terms of Guantanamo Bay as well. The other justices didn't seem to pick up on this. I mean, I think that what Justice Kavanaugh said is, is, is very important, that you have to be very careful about allowing an emergency declaration to uh, paper over any you know, of the kind of legal issues that may arise. And that certainly was manifested in Youngstown Steel, as well as in some other cases. But most of the rest of the court seemed to be focused on whether this was an excessive delegation. In other words, whether the Education Department went outside the borders of what Congress would have anticipated, as opposed to debating whether this is a proper invocation of an emergency or not. I mean, the difficulty is clearly many Americans felt the sting of COVID and the fact of having to bear these student loans during a time of economic privation was extremely tough. But does that say just forbearance and wait three years before you pay off the loan? Or does that say you could actually cancel the student loans themselves? And that's a big difference. And I think the court was troubled by the fact that Congress hadn't explicitly given the power to the education department to cancel loans as opposed to just issue forbearance. I think they all would agree that the education secretary had the power to say, okay, let's wait three years before we collect your loans. We won't charge any interest. Let's wait five years. That would have been okay, but the question of cancellation, maybe that was too far in the minds of at least a number of the justices. Several of the conservative justices, including the chief, talking about what he called the fairness argument, which echoes a common criticism from opponents of the student loan program, who argues it punishes Americans who couldn't afford college or worked hard to pay off their loans. Here's Justice Neil Gorsuch on that point. What I think they argue that is missing is cost to other persons in terms of fairness, for example, people who've paid their loans, people who um, don't have plan their lives around not seeking loans um, and people who are not eligible for loans in the first place, and that a half a trillion dollars is being diverted to one group of favored persons over others. So this is a conservative trope to use that language, but it does factor here in a particular way. If the court were to take up the merits of the Biden administration decision and decide that the Biden administration had the power to cancel then the question would be whether its decision to cancel the debt was, in the words of the Administrative Procedure Act, arbitrary and capricious. And what the justices noted was that in these declarations of policy announcing the cancellation of the debts, there was no recognition or acknowledgement of the potential unfairness to those who had gone to a less costly school because of the face of the debt or those who had struggled to pay off the debt and that there was at least no recognition of those interests in the calculus that was used by, at least articulated by the Education Department in announcing the cancellation. So that issue would arise only if the court decided that the Education Department had the power to issue a cancellation, and then they would just decide whether that was fair 
And they might say that because the Biden administration didn't articulate the concerns that could be raised by people who weren't benefited, such as the two plaintiffs in the second companion case, that the whole cancellation should be dismissed for being arbitrary and capricious. If they do that, that would leave open the path for the Education Department to go back and announce again anew the cancellation, only this time addressing the concerns of those who weren't benefited and justifying the line drawing that the Education Department had to do in deciding who should get their loans canceled and who, like me, who paid off their loans years and years ago, would not get any kind of reimbursement. Hours and hours of oral arguments, becoming even harder to tell what's going on with these cases. But do you see even the possibility of five justices, forget the standing issue, who would vote to uphold the the student loan forgiveness program? I think that the court might be fractured. It's possible that there would be some justices saying this is an excessive delegation or the major questions doctrine would apply and therefore the Biden administration policy must be rescinded. There's some who'd say, well, there was a targeted emergency type of delegation to the education department. We should allow the education department to proceed, but it has to do so in a measured, thoughtful way. And because they didn't give concern to the people who would feel frustrated and left out of this cancellation program, that the administration has to go back and do it again. That kind of fracture we saw in the DACA case a couple of terms ago. In the DACA case, what the, the court said was, okay, you have the power to do this, but you didn't really have a complete enough explanation about all the factors. And so the Chief Justice was invoking that case and that approach to say, okay, if you had the power, at least you had to consider the fairness and the impact on third parties. And they would send it back. And so there may be that kind of alliance. And I do think there'll be a couple of justices and maybe even, as you mentioned, Justice Barrett, who decides there's certainly no standing in this case. If the justices rule against the student loan program, will that amplify frustrations that many Americans have with the Supreme Court that continues to interfere in these major political decisions and seems to be out of step with the majority of Americans? I think there'll be a continued wave of frustration perhaps anger at the Supreme Court for its willingness to curtail the operations of the executive branch. And indeed, there may be some political fallout, and this may give President Biden more of another kind of argument to use in his reelection campaign, showing people that, hey, what the administration does is really important in people's lives, and so therefore you should give me another four years. Uh, that may happen as well. Let's talk for a moment again about the major questions doctrine. It was the Roberts Court that established that doctrine. The Roberts Court uh, established it. There was reference to earlier cases in which the Roberts Court had articulated the major questions doctrine. Justice Scalia was one of the first to articulate it and as sort of a, a single point. And then since that time, more courts have systematically referenced it. And now it's known, and basically you can look at the major questions in in a variety of ways. At its most appealing, which many people don't agree with it, but at its most appealing, the major questions doctrine says, look, if we're not sure that Congress gave the agency this authority and the agency's action would chart a whole new path in terms of social and economic policy, we should read the delegation narrowly. But I think as the so-called liberal justices noted in this case, we know what 
the Congress did. Congress wanted to give the head of the Department of Education the authority to deal with an emergency. And so it's not like charting a new path. It's not like being an activist. They're just trying to interpret the powers that Congress gave him. And um, in this case, to cancel at least part of the student loan debt that uh, 25 to 40 million people in the United States have. There was an interesting argument um, under the major questions doctrine during the discussion. The point was raised about whether it is less risky for Congress to give a great deal of power to administrative agencies in administering benefits programs as opposed to in regulating. The thought underlying that discussion was if you're just talking about merits, you're not giving the ability of administration to regulate new areas, to compromise new kinds of economies at all. All you're suggesting is whether to tinker with a program that Congress clearly established, and even if it's canceled, then you're not necessarily, again, changing the economies of industries. And so from that perspective, a number of justices echoed that thought, as did the Solicitor General, that a delegation of the power to limit a marriage program, it could be Social Security or it could be here education loans, is a lot less dangerous and therefore the major questions doctrine should not apply as fully as opposed to when we're talking about regulating new authorities such as carbon emissions. Well, we'll have to keep guessing about what happens until perhaps as late as June when they come down with their final decisions of the term. Thanks so much, Hal. That's Professor Harold Krent of the Chicago Kent College of Law. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do. That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The Supreme Court will once again weigh the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau's fate, focusing on whether the agency's independent funding violates the Constitution. 
This week, the high court elected to hear the Biden administration's appeal of an October decision from the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit that found the agency's independent funding through the Federal Reserve was unconstitutional. A ruling upholding the Fifth Circuit's finding would wreak havoc on the agency's operations. At the very least, the CFPB would find paying bills difficult, and its prior rules, enforcement actions, and settlements could become potentially invalid. Joining me is Alan Denson, a partner at Strucken Strucken Levan. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals threw out a never-enforced payday lending rule. Explain why it did that, what its reasoning was. Put it into one sentence, it has to do with the unification of the purse and the sword, and that actually comes from directly from the opinion itself. And what that phrase covers is this idea that Congress, through appropriations and and the executive, should should not be under one house. So an executive agency should not be able to fund itself, and that is what CFSA was able to successfully argue and convince the Fifth Circuit of, is that it's improper for an agency to be able to set its budget and determine what its funding is. That power belongs to Congress under Article I of the Constitution, and that violates separation of powers principles. That's the reasoning and, and rationale of the Fifth Circuit in a nutshell. Is that a novel legal argument? It is. No court has ever reached that position before. And the Bureau's structure is also not necessarily novel in comparison to, to other agencies. In fact, there are other financial regulators who are similarly structured like the Bureau, who are not funded through appropriations, who have a single director. A great example of that would be the OCC, for example, which is a sister regulator of the CFPB on the FFIEC Council. The Bureau is is certainly not um, unique in in that it is independently funded and has this full director structure, which is a big thing that the, the circuit seems to take issue with. I think what does make them unique is that they're able to request a budget of an up-to amount. That's unique, but that's not the reason why the Fifth Circuit says it reached its decision. It it really has to do with this fundamental structure that the circuit believes or the panel believes that an agency should not be independent outside of congressional appropriation. So the Fifth Circuit thinks that the funding scheme for the CFPB is unconstitutional. That's right. Are there any other circuit courts who've ruled on this and come to different conclusions? Yeah, the D.C. Circuit early in the Bureau's history ruled on it. And the Ninth Circuit, I believe, has also ruled on that argument. So there is a split. What does it tell you that the Supreme Court declined to put this case on an expedited schedule as the administration asked? I think that it means the CFPB is going to face continued uncertainty. I think that that's a bad sign for the agency. And I I do think um, that they're going to give this ruling a a really close look. I mean, the court in its current form has been taking a hard look at the administrative um, enforcement regime on, on multiple fronts in recent 
terms, whether it be the Federal Trade Commission, whether it be um, the EPA through this major questions doctrine that was decided last year. There, there really is a fresh look being taken at some of the things that those of us um, in government enforcement work um, have taken for granted for, for decades. The Solicitor General said the ruling has affected more than half the Bureau's 22 enforcement cases, giving defendants an argument for dismissal and threatens the validity of virtually all past CFPB actions. Can you explain what she means there? Well, if if the Bureau is unconstitutional in its funding, it means that, that every action it is taking as a result of that funding is is problematic and is an ultra vires act. So um, that would mean current rulemakings are invalid because those are prepared by CFPB staff members who are funded outside of the congressional appropriations process. It would mean that past settlements that companies entered into were shepherded along or forced along by, um, by employees who were funded outside of congressional appropriations. And um, and it means that current investigations are, are funded illegally in the Fifth Circuit's view. And so um, there really is, is not anything that the Bureau can do that doesn't require the expenditure of funds. Did the Solicitor General ask for this decision to be held in abeyance until the Supreme Court decides? Or are defendants going to start, you know, arguing that this ruling allows dismissal of their cases? Virtually every defendant who is in litigation right now with the CFPB and and plenty of others who are in investigations are, are already making that argument, whether they're in the Fifth Circuit or not. And so it, it really does affect everything the Bureau is doing from an enforcement posture, because if you're a defendant in one of these investigations or or litigation, people people want to bring every defense to their side that they can, and and this is certainly one that is um, that is live and is currently problematic for the bureau. Will that be part of the Supreme Court's consideration? The number of cases that could be affected by this? I'm not sure. I mean, they could either take a a real politic approach that would that would be looking for a practical result. You know, we've already got rules in place and settlements that have happened and employees that have been paid. Um, You know, we can't really unwind that, so let's find a middle ground. Or the court could also um, say, we have a really important philosophical point that that we want to express here, and we're bound by the Constitution, and we're interpreting the Constitution, and um, so we're not going to change our ruling based on what the consequences would be. So, and so there's, I think there's kind of two approaches there. It's unclear what the what the court would do. So the court could say the Fifth Circuit is correct, and mm-hmm. that would mean the end of the CFPB? Not necessarily. Um, they could say the Fifth Circuit is correct, and we're going to rewrite the statute. We're going to strike the portion of the Dodd-Frank Act that that sets how the CSPB is funded, and um, 
and then that would make them subject to congressional appropriation. They, I mean, they could they could effectively rewrite the statute, and that's certainly within their authority, or or strike the offending portion. And there's a severability clause in the Dodd Frank Act, which which would allow that. So the Supreme Court already dealt one major blow to the CFPB's independence in 2020. Remind us about that. So it's the it's the Salem Law case, and it had to do with the removability of the director of the CFPB, which, as I mentioned before, the single director. There's not a commission, um, and and that's the sole political appointee in the office. And the court in in that case ruled that a provision in the Dodd-Frank Act that allowed the CFPB director to be removed only for cause, they they said that that portion was offensive to the Constitution, again, violating separation of powers doctrine, and, and struck that from the statute and said that now the CFPB director from here forward will be removable at will. And um, and it became immediately effective. You uh, referred to this before, but could this case have implications for the Federal Reserve Board, the FDIC, and the controller of the currency? It it could. I mean, if the court um, writes uh, a very broad opinion um, and similar language to the Fifth Circuit, that could be used to argue against the the OCC, Fed, FDIC, um, who have similar funding structures. Um, the one thing that differentiates the, the Fed and the, the FDIC is that they, are, they have governing bodies, either a board or commissions, and, um, and that's different from the OCC and CFPB who have single director structures. But um, but that is, that is one way that the court could rule, and the court could also just make a, a very narrow decision that would go against the CFPB specifically, would um, find something unique about the Bureau and, and limit its ruling to that. Or it could say, um, you know, we, we think this was wrongly decided, and um, we're not going to say anything about the other agencies, but, but we know that this case against the CFPB was wrongly decided. Finally, will this case be a test of how far the justices are willing to go to constrain the so-called administrative state? I I do think so, but I don't think it's the the furthest that um, the court has been asked to go. I mean, the the West Virginia versus EPA case and the this major question doctrine that was developed in the last term was a was a pretty far um, was a pretty far out there opinion and decision, and um, I I don't think that any of us in the consumer financial services bar that follows this kind of thing um, saw that happening, and think that there's a lot of application of that case to. Um, CFPB and financial regulator type positions. And I think you'll see um, more of those challenges coming. So I I think that um, West Virginia versus EPA is perhaps uh, 
a bigger opinion than whatever comes out of this CFSA case and will have longer um, reaching implications. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Alan. That's Alan Denson, a partner at Strook & Strook & Levan. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.